You're listening to Tabletop Bellhop Live, recorded October 3rd, 2018. This week we talk about Gloomhaven, yes again, and Zen Board Game Arena. Then, be glad you missed the streaming train wreck and sit down for a top 20 list and a discussion of games. Tabletop Bellhop assumes no liability for the accuracy of this top 20 list or even asserts that it's actually 20 games. Hello, and welcome to Tabletop Bellhop Live, episode 10, Picking Favorites. Coming to you from Hamilton, I'm Sean, and here with me, live and direct from Windsor, Ontario, the tabletop bellhop himself, Mo T. I am the tabletop bellhop, your cardboard concierge, your RPG maitre d', answering your game and game night questions and striving to make everyone's gaming experience better. Let me put my years of game playing, event organizing, and game night hosting to use for you. I'd like to say hi to everyone hanging out in the lobby here on Twitch. It's a pleasure to see people interested. For those hanging listening to the podcast... You can join us live every Wednesday night, 9.30 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop. We love hearing from our listeners and viewers. Each week, we hope to highlight some of that feedback, both positive and negative. In regards to our mechanics list, Jillian Schmidt at BoardGameChick on Twitter. Love it. Great idea for a list. Thanks, Jillian. Jillian and I had a conversation on Twitter about dice rolling and dice mitigation. They were the reason social deduction made it onto the definition list. A local Windsor gamer, Ezio, said, This is an extremely useful post. Whenever I have students make board games for school projects, they're always either roll and move or trivia games. This might help them be more creative. Thanks, Ezio. Brian Kurtz had this to say about our sound episode on our Slack channel. This was a great episode, and the coolest thing was hearing about Big G's Tales from Equestria game. I hope it goes well. Mo, I think you're taking the right tack to let her do her thing. I'm intrigued by some of the different audio software you described. Thanks for the feedback, Brian. I really don't want to raise kids that hate the things I love. And so far that seems to be working. Now this came from our, uh, this comment from Brian came from our Slack channel. You too could have access to that if you support us on Patreon. That's at patreon.com forward slash tabletop bellhop. Brad Murray writes on G+. This is the first gaming podcast I've enjoyed in a long, long time. He followed up on Discord writing... Just listen to eight, and that might be the only podcast I listen to. I've listened to dozens, and I really don't like the format, but yours is great. So many are just so dreary and unedited, and I have no patience. But you two have a good pace. You both have radio-quality voices, too, which is unusual. Radio-quality voices. All right, I wouldn't have expected that one, but sure. At least he didn't say we have a face for radio. Thanks so much, Brad. Uh, This actually means a lot, coming from Brad specifically. He's the man behind VSCA Publishing. Uh, he's responsible for such RPG, RPGs as Diaspora, Hollow Point, Deluge, and more. His latest game he's working on is called Soft Horizon. I actually did some playtesting with Brad on an unreleased game that used to go under the name Zero Dark Theory before the movie kind of stole that name from, from under him. Well, we get better with your comments and suggestions. If you'd like to let us know something about the show, send your feedback to mo at tabletopbellhop.com and or sean at tabletopbellhop.com. That's S-E-A-N. Also, we love interacting with our fans on social media. You can find me all over the web as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. You can find Sean as Dark Elf LX. And now, Tabletop Gaming Weekly, where we look back and summarize what's happened since we were last here. What games hit the Bellhop's tabletop? Every week, I like to take a look back at the games we played, any events we attended, and other cool gaming stuff that's going on. You can catch the blog version of this week in review at tabletopbellhop.com. Now, there was not a lot of gaming going on this. It's still cold season here in Windsor. Planned a couple game nights, had lots of cancellations. Uh, No Monday night game, didn't get out to any of the game stores. But because of that, 
I've been playing quite a bit online. One of the main things I ended up doing was I got Sean into Kaido on Board Game Arena. Now, Takaido is the most zen game I own. This is a peaceful game where you're walking down the Takaido. It was an ancient ro- road in Japan that leads all the way to the capital, the old capital of Kyoto. And along the way, you're going to meet people, and you're going to have some good food, and you check out the vistas, and you collect cool objects and souvenirs. And it's just this zen, peaceful journey until you can't get any money because the other player jumped ahead of you and took the only farm that was available, and now when you get to the next stop, you can't eat. Yeah, zen. Very zen game. It was interesting, and we mentioned this game a few episodes ago and talked about it sometimes in nature with two-player. How we started, it really was, especially playing on board game Arena, where it takes the card dealing and the shuffling and the coin managing all out of your way, and you just get to walk down the path until someone blocks you from getting that last card in the set you need to finish. But it's very pretty. It is. And then we play with the two-player variant, which is even worse because in the two-player variant, you have a gray player and whoever's in the first place gets to move that gray player. And that gray player exists for one reason only, to screw the other players. You block where you think they're going to go. This is actually one of my favorite two-player games. It is a very good game. It can be played with kids as long as you don't play too cutthroat and let them go where they want to go. After we played a few two-player games, we got into a large group game with five players. When you're on a slow-moving system like Board Game Arena, where different people could be in different time zones taking uh, their turns, it becomes even more zen, but in a very different way. Mostly because you completely forget what it is you were working on when you get when it comes back to your turn again. So, up next for me uh, was an actual face-to-face game. Friday, Tori and Kat came over. We did play Gloomhaven again. This is our new Every Friday game that replaced Pandemic Legacy. I've been talking about it on every show. If you want my opinions on it, take a listen to the last few episodes. But overall, it's it doesn't live up to the huge amount of hype that is out there for this game. I am enjoying it. It's just not. Haven't quite gotten to that level. So one of the things that happened in the game that was cool is we finally had choices. Instead of you must play the next scenario, you got to choose. So we had, I can't even remember what, there was something way off on the map. And instead we went to this Inox, I-N-O-X, I guess that's how you pronounce it, Inox Forest. And we got to fight there. The fight there was a slaughter, like a total slaughter. It made us feel evil. It like we we did not. We're like, wow. I, I guess we are the bad guys in this game now. Okay then. And then after that, though, something cool happened, and we got a f- our first major plot choice, and that really reminded me of playing Knights of the Old Republic or um, Mass Effect, any of the Bioware games with the the moral system where it's going up and down and the, the, we got a big choice, like go this way or go that way. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I like that. So there's a few bonus points for Gloomhaven for finally starting to split it up. Now, as for actual mechanics, we are still playing on easy. I, uh, this even more so than the last one seemed too easy. Now, again, it could have been luck. Like, I don't know what is with a Tori's the one drawing the cards for the monsters. If it's just his luck. But there's, in this scenario, there's six guards blocking your path. And if you can't get back past them, it's going to be tough. Well, you draw. we drew the action for the six guards. They did nothing. They stood there and stood on defense and didn't attack us. So 
it was really easy to just take those guys out. And then from then on, kind of walked through it. it. It wasn't that bad at all. But again, it's fun being this badass, but I'm not sure. Like I, at this point, I'm kind of thinking maybe we should try first level again or not playing on easy. Uh, one of the cool things we did get, though, is we got our first item plan. Now, this is something I found really cool in the game that I don't know if people have... I haven't heard anyone mention it yet, and I don't think it's a spoiler. If it is, I really apologize. I don't think it is. It's right in the core rulebook. But during the game, you can find item uh, blueprints or item plans. And when you find them, what you do is you take the card out of the special item deck, and you find all copies of that item plan, and then that goes into the shop deck. So the next time you visit Gloomhaven, you can now buy that new thing. I thought that was a really cool rule. So the shop will start evolving and you find new technologies. The other thing we found was a side quest. So this was something else cool where there's a deck of cards and on the other side of the cards are stickers. And you'll find a side quest. You'll just shuffle that deck. You don't know what side quest it is. And you'll flip over. The card now have a new sticker to put on the map. And the way the game works is when you start to play every night, like every session, like the next time, next Friday, uh, we'll look at the map and pick a sticker we haven't beat yet and go, we're going there, which is pretty cool. Now, can you go back and refight even if you have uh, one? Can you like, you know, bulk up on XP? No, you cannot. If you complete a mission, you cannot do it again. Once it's done, and no one else can do it again either. As long as you haven't succeeded, you can keep going back. So actually, one of the strategies that matters quite a bit in the game is making sure to get all the stuff before you finish the mission. So different, like we've seen a few different end conditions. They haven't all been wipe the board. This last one we played was not wipe the board. There was something else we had to do. And I don't want to give that away. That may actually be a spoiler. So we could have done the thing. But there was a treasure chest in like the farthest back corner of the map. And we're like, oh, no, we have got to get that treasure chest before we, we finish it. Though it did lead to some real big metagaming where we're like, you and you are going to waste your turns and rest just to give us enough time to go get this treasure chest, which is very Euro game, very board gamey. It's one of the things that really pulls it away from D&D and RPGs. Right. But it's nice to know. It's nice to know you can't farm. Yes, farmers though, and just like I, it, to talk about metagaming, I guess you could go in and intentionally fail, and go in and again and intentionally fail. But I can't see that being much fun. No. So the other thing we're finally getting are the check marks and perks. So at the start of every battle, you get cards, and they give you some kind of goal for that battle. What's interesting is they're not usually they don't usually help the party; they help you. It adds a neat little player versus player without being overly evil or backstabby element to the game. We've now played enough matches that we're starting to get more of these completed and we're getting what they're called perks. Now, perks modify your combat deck. Instead of using a D20 to hit in this game, you get this deck of cards, basically. And there's pluses and minuses in it. Well, by using your check marks, you can modify that deck to make it so, say, you hit more often. Or you start infusing elements or you're, you start doing pushback damage or whatever. So it was cool to see that. So I do like that as well. And then Anchi Games, Vermling, I remember the name this time, leveled up. We got to see our first case of someone leveling up. I was literally one XP away. I was so frustrated. We ended the game back at town, and I think next week we're go staying in town to raid a warehouse. Overall, my overall impression hasn't changed. 
It's good to see some branching paths show up. I do really like the way the random quests work. I really like the item blueprints. That's a brilliant thing that I would like to see another. Actually, like I think that would be a cool RPG element. Like in D and D, like the the deck of new new I don't know whatever new plans, and then like in the dungeon you find the plans for a better type of smithy hammer, and you can bring that back to the town, and now you can buy it, and it gives you a plus one proficiency bonus when smithing. That's a, that's a pretty new mo- modern uh, or regular modern yes. video gaming uh, thing where it's all about the blueprints, right? You're collecting blueprints in mm-hmm. order. Usually in video games, it's to uh, craft your equipment, but you know, buy it or you know, give it to the give it to the shop so that they can craft it for you. One of the going back to Gloomhaven. So I like the item shop thing. I also really like the random travel. Every time you travel somewhere, you draw a card and something happens. Uh, when you're in the city, you can have something happen. That's pretty cool. But there's part of me that makes me think we should all be playing D and D instead of this. Like it's it's very limited. It's it's a board game, and I am certain if we played that Inox scenario that we played the other day playing that and we were playing an RPG where we could like make any decision that we wouldn't have done what happened in that mission and it wouldn't have ended the way it did. So once we finished playing Gloomhaven, as I said, it was pretty easy. So we ended early. Like we have a three to four hour game night and we were over this and I think two hours, something like that. Um, so Tori was like, oh, we have time. We got to play Azul. Like I, I actually left the room for a minute to use the washroom. I came back and Tori had grabbed Azul. Well, I got them into Azul from them coming over and playing and they went camping with their uh, Tori's mom and their family. And they brought Azul, and I guess his mom was, like, impossible to beat at first. And then just last week, Tori finally beat his mom. So he's like, I think I finally know how to play. I I can grok this game. But he wasn't sure because he'd only beat his mom, so he wanted to play us. And, yep, sure enough, he won. So It's a a game where you you really can develop and uh, and work on it. I, I know I felt way more confident when we sat down at QCC to play it. In honor of our 10th episode, we are going to launch our first giveaway. That's right. A couple weeks ago, I was contacted by the Bureau of Dragons over on G+. They wanted to know if I was willing to do a review of their pretty cool License to Slay. This is a big, cool, fantasy gamer blading thing that I thought was pretty neat. I also thought it'd be something cool we could share with our audience. So I asked them if they'd be willing to not only send me a copy to review, but also to give one away to a lucky fan. After some cajoling, I even got them to agree to ship worldwide. That's right, our first giveaway will be open to anyone and everyone across the world, even that one listener in Australia, or possibly Tassie currently. So here's the deal. License to Slay review will go live on Tuesday, the same day this show goes out in podcast form. Check out the review on the blog, and at the bottom of it will be some kind of contest entry form. The contest will run for three weeks, which means it will close on October 30th. Tune in next week for more details when we cover the review on the show. So coming up on November 3rd and 4th, myself and a bunch of local Windsor gamers will be gaming for more than 24 hours in support of Extra Life. This supports the Children's Miracle Network of Hospitals. Windsor Gaming Resource, another venture of the Bellhop, has raised over $14,000 over the last five years with no plan on slowing down. That's right. And that's in U.S. as well. So that's like, I don't know, 300000 or something Canadian. We would love your support for this endeavor. There are a few ways you can show it. So if you go to extra-life.org and search for Windsor Gaming Resource, W-I-N-D-S-O-R, you can find our team. If you're participating in Extra Life, we'd love it if you joined our team. I don't care if you're not from Windsor. That's not important. If you're not participating, though, we would love a donation. 
Next to every member's name, there's a donate now button. Just bang on one of those, fire off a couple bucks. Every little bit counts. There are so many ways you can help, and it all goes to the kids. This is part of an international charity organization and not a purely local Windsor event. That is true. Extra Life is worldwide. This is our sixth year participating locally. Now, we are also looking for donations of cool gaming and geeky items for the event. So, games for us to play, swag we can give away to participants, and items for our live auction. Now, our live auction is huge. That's what makes us the most money. If you'd like to donate something like this, please contact me at mo at tabletopbellhop.com. The last thing you can do is to help spread the word. When you see Mo sharing information about the event online on Twitter, Facebook, or G+, like, comment, and share. Now you can find us all across the web, and we grow by the support of listeners and viewers like you. So please take a minute to subscribe to our content on your favorite platform, give us a like, comment, or review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you find us, and help us spread our gaming advice to the world. Now I hear we got our first five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Brian Kurtz. These really do help. When people search for gaming podcasts or tabletop or game advice, we want our name and our show to show up. And the best way for that to happen are positive Apple Podcast reviews. Now, just so you're aware, sometimes it's hard to see your your reviews, but let us know and we can make sure that they have come up, especially with different countries. If you are a Canadian and you're looking on the Apple Store, you'll only see Canadian comments and Canadian reviews. But we have access to all those countries' uh, information, so we can check and, and see if things have come through. Now, if you're streaming on Twitch and are interested in a mutual hosting agreement, we would love to hear from you. We host you, you host us, and everyone wins. Just contact Mo at TabletopBellhop.com and we can set something up. Sign up to receive the Tabletop Bellhop Weekly in your inbox. Every Wednesday, we'll be sending out an email recapping all of the content we've released in the previous week. Blog posts, new podcast episodes, reviews. The new one I'm getting into is uh, Friday 5-Minute Maps. Anything else we create, it'll all be listed there. I sent one out today. I did not forget. I have not forgotten, and I will not. You can sign up at newsletter.tabletopbellhop.com. Or go over to the tabletopbellhop.com webpage and you'll find a spot to subscribe in the sidebar. Each episode, we look to answer one of your game, gaming, or game night questions. You can send your questions to questions at tabletopbellhop.com or you can head over to the webpage, tabletopbellhop.com, and click on Ask the Bellhop. We also have a G Plus community. It has a section for questions. I'm on Twitter pretty much all day. You can DM me or at me there. Uh, head over to our Facebook page. Hit us up there. We take your questions anywhere and everywhere. We want you to be able to reach us. So today's question, everyone asks us, what is your favorite game? No, seriously, like everyone. Ever since starting this, I get some variation of that question almost every day. It's often the first time asked by new people in chat. Uh, It's the thing I get DMs the most on on Twitter. Well, except please share my Cards Against Humanity knockoff on Kickstarter for briefs, please. Now, to be fair, while we joke, there are some good reasons for this question between gamers when looking at someone they may or may not want to hear advice from. I get it. The whole point in wanting to know what a podcaster or a content producer, what games they like, is you want to know, do we have anything in common? Right? Can you trust my advice and my information if you don't have a base to build on? Do you want to know, are we worth listening to? Yes. Yes, we are. (laughs) Oh, sorry. I thought that was my turn to answer a question. (laughs) Nice. 
I get it, right? Like, there are podcasts I don't listen to anymore because all they like are werewolf. They talk about werewolf every episode and social deduction and how awesome social deduction is. And the latest social deduction game is this. And player elimination is awesome. Like, that's not me. I'm not into any of that stuff. If you listen to me talk about the thing on a previous episode, you'd hear that. So I don't listen to that podcast. And I learned that by learning that these people like games I generally don't. Now, I like to think I have a ridiculously broad selection of games I like. So there's probably something out there for everyone. But I do get why the question gets asked. That's why we decided we will finally answer that question. How I made this list. One of the problems I have, taste change, like daily. I have, like, you ask me what's your favorite game, and I'll give you one answer today, and then tomorrow I'll give you a totally different answer. To me, it's all about what I want to play now, what I'm into right now. Like, I'll get hooked on a game and play the heck out of it, and then that game will sit on my shelf for three years. But then sometimes I'll have such fond memories of that game, you'll be like, what's your favorite game? And I'm like, oh man, this game, I love it. And it ends up I haven't played it in seven years. So really, should that be one of my favorite games if I never actually play it? I'm wishy-washy right now. This is my top 20 list of right now. Well, actually, no, it's my top 20 list of last Saturday, because that's when I made it. If I made it again today, it'd probably be a little different. Now, this is similar to the problem any parent has when their kids demand that they list their favorite fill-in-the-blank movies, songs, TV shows. As a young child, their favorites are absolute. They may only know 20 different TV shows, so they're all in their top 20. Uh, and they just haven't experienced enough to have a, a, more than a few favorite things. When you have a thousand or so games to choose from it's a little bit harder to pick your top. Just like when you've known music for 20 years, it's hard to, to pick, you know, five songs that are your favorites. The other thing with this top 20 list, we're not going to go number 20, number 19, down to number one. This really isn't in any order. I used a site called Board Game Ranking Engine, or BGRE. I'll throw a link in the show notes. It is pretty cool. You go on and you can just give it a text list uh, with the games separated by a comma. But even better, you can import a list from BoardGameGeek. So instead of importing my whole list, because as Sean mentioned, there's thousands, I sorted my list by games 7 or higher, rated 7 or higher. And then I exported that to Excel, and then I first I filtered it and took out any expansions. Then I imported it to Board Game Ranking Engine. And then I spent six or so hours picking. So the way it works is it just gives you two games. Pick one, which is better. So at the time, I went with the whole, what would I rather play right now? This or this? And I picked one. And it just keeps doing that. And I think I did 2,800 matches by the end of the day. Like, I didn't spend six hours hardcore clicking buttons. I had it up in the background. I was listening to podcasts. I was doing tabletop gaming deal stuff. I was interacting online. I stopped and wrote a blog post. And I just click a couple more, click a couple more. Get out of the shower, click a couple more. And by the end of the, by about six, seven o'clock at night, I had my list. Um, man, though, the other thing was, it's hard. Like, the problem is, sometimes you're comparing apples and oranges, and I found that extremely difficult. Like, how do you compare Hamster Roll, a giant wooden wheel with slats on it that people are putting different colored, shaped, and weighted blocks on, trying to make the wheel not fall over, versus Terra Mystica, where you're playing one of 14 fantasy races, trying to terraform the world so it's better for your race. Like, how, how do you compare those games? Like, I love both those games, but, like, is Hamster Roll better than Terra Mystica? Or is, like, or, or Pitch Car versus Puerto Rico? 
how, how do you do that? Or like, you know what your best role selection game is and what your best direction dexterity game is. Well, which is better? I now have to pick if I like role selection better or dexterity better. And if you don't know what those are, tune into our last episode. We talk all about it. This is a, a common problem when you just over categorize uh, or, or, or under categorize too many categories to deal with and you, and you aren't working within narrow categories. How do you pick between uh, the color orange and Diablo three? Yes. It's just, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're, they're too broad to be able to really choose. And, and honestly, if you, unless you're going to look at very individual narrow topics, like what we talked about in, in nine and compare within a topic range, the only way to do it is the way BGRE does yeah. uh, really. And it's, and, and again, that's fleeting. It's very in that moment. That is what the favorite is. Correct. Plus, it's not comparing every game to every game, right? Like, obviously, it has an algorithm where it's like, well, you ranked Terraforming Mars higher than Pitchcar. So then when you rank uh, Puerto Rico lower than Pitchcar, it's obviously lower than Terraforming Mars, right? Like, that's obviously what BGRE does. Which is which is a bit of a math problem. In theory, if you were to play play the game long enough, you know, play the matching game long enough, you, in theory, would eventually come up with the truth. It supposedly is the truth, but again, it, it was the truth right then, right? So if I did this right now, uh, besides you wouldn't want to watch me do it for six hours, there you go. There's an idea for a stream. I'll stream me going through my entire collection on BGRE. If anyone backs me at the $100 level on Pat Patreon, you can totally all do that for a day and you can watch me. I know, I'll rate every game I own, okay? Sound good? So again, if I did it now, to be honest... I'd say probably the top 100 would probably still, 70 of those would still be the top 100. Now, top 50 are probably going to move around a lot more. And again, this top 20 probably wouldn't be in the same order. So again, these are in the order BGRE gave them to me, not specifically that my number one is the best game I own. First off, the best game I own is Terraforming Mars. I love this game. I, I liked it when I got it, right? I'm like, this is a cool game. This is fun. It's neat. Oh, I like the way that mechanic works. Oh, wait, if you do it, this, okay, that's cool. And just the more I played, the more I discovered uh, different ways to play, different strategies, the fact that multiple strategies are all relevant. And then I started to learn the flexibility of the game, where if a new player comes in, I can throw out the Corporate Wars rules, and we can play with just beginner corporations, and it'll be fantastic. Or we can sit there, and I can throw in all the Corporate Wars. We can draft for corporations. We can draft for cards. We're going to make it a four-hour game, but it is going to be a nice, heavy, fantastic game. Perfect engine building, slow build up to a big engine at the end where everyone's scoring lots of points. Or we could totally pull everything out and go, you know what? Everyone start with two resources and everything, and let's finish a game in an hour, and let, we'll still have a fun experience and still get to play Terraforming Mark. Because of this, I gotta say that this is, like, I've, I've been saying it may be the best game in my collection. I'm thinking it is. Like, I have, there's not a lot of games that I played more than 30 times. I think this one's at 35. And I know there are times I have forgot to mark that I played it, right? Like, I try to record all my plays, but I know I forget. I, I am really digging Terraforming Mars. It is one of my top games of right now. I, I totally understand. I gotta, I've only played the basic version, or at least me as the basic with you guys playing a slightly more advanced version. And, and the depth of it is obvious, even from right there. It's a top-notch game, and I've, I've only scratched the surface. I can't wait to uh, play more. All right, next one. 
I don't think this surprises anyone that's listened to a single episode we have ever recorded would be Azul. I can't say enough good things about this game. It looks fantastic. It plays fantastic. It has a small footprint. It's extremely each, except for maybe the scoring. And once you get it, you get it. Just some people takes a little bit to rock that Scrabble scoring. You do up and down. You don't count. You count the middle one twice, you know. It's very, uh, I don't know. It's just such a good game. And then once you think you've solved it, flip that board over and you look and go, oh, this is easy. I can do whatever I want. Yeah, just try it. Trust me, just try it and see how hard Azul can be. It can be simple if you only stare at your own board. But then once you get the game and you start looking at what the other people are collecting, you, it moves to another level. It's The game evolves to a different style of game that is much more cutthroat. Absolutely. And you know what? It's The scoring is, is tricky at times. And again, I, I remember when I, when I jumped back into it, I had to rethink the scoring again. But the only really, once, the score, once you remember the scoring again, it's really easy to jump back in because it is, at its root, an incredibly simple game with so many combinations that it becomes incredibly complex and enjoyable because of it. Here's a tip for Azul players. Realize you're not going to fill in the whole board ever. Moving on, uh, I'm grouping two games together here, and there's a really good reason for that. The original game, when it first came out, was called Wallenstein, and it was a German game uh, produced in Germany. Like a lot of people talk about Euro Euro games and German games. These are board game definitions maybe we'll do as a different topic. They call them Euro games. We used to call them German games because these games were made in Germany, and Wallenstein's a classic that was made in Germany, and it is a mix of a Euro game, Cube Pusher, Folk on a map using cubes, but also empire building and area control. It combines a whole bunch of things in one. And you have this big map of Germany. It looks like Risk when you first start set it up. So it's a big map of Germany with cubes all over the place. And it looks like you're all going to attack each other. But it is a brilliant game where you have a set of eight different actions you can do. And you have cards for every province you own. And with the provinces you own, you can program what happens of those eight actions in those provinces. So it's somewhat programmed movement, like AKA Robo Rally, but with your provinces. And then you have fake province cards because your opponents don't necessarily know what you're doing. So you can put down a card looking like this province is going to do something. But meanwhile, it's a blank and you're taxing your people. You're trying to get food to feed people. And then of those eight actions, only two of them actually allow you to attack the other players. Three of them, though, are build up the provinces you own to make them worth more points as long as you can hold on to them. It's got a very Euro feel with the building up your own province, especially one that's well defended. You're just racking in points for yourself, and it's not something that's going to get attacked. And then there's only two attack actions each round. You only get, say, 8 or 12 attack actions the entire game, and that's the only actual combat that'll happen. So it kind of tricks you. When you look at it, you're thinking, folk on a map, risk, all-out war, I'm going to wipe out the other guy. But then when you play, it's all about building up your engine and taxing the right provinces and risk mitigation, because when you tax the provinces, the people get pissed off, and then they make, the farmers can actually revolt in the game. It is one of the best games, and I haven't even gotten to the coolest part, which is is the cube tower in this game is a cardboard tower with a little catch basin at the bottom and it's got like a funnel at the top and all as i mentioned all your units are cubes well whenever you fight someone you grab all the cubes in the province and you drop them in the top of this tower and what's really neat is inside is this like 
mesh of different cardboard with gaps between them so cubes get stuck in the tower so whenever you're going to do a fight you drop all the cubes in and you don't know what's going to come out so that randomizes the battle what's even neater is before the game starts you seed the tower so you grab 10 cubes from every player and you drop them in and some are going to get stuck so you could attack a province with one cube and he's got three defending but you could get lucky and all those cubes that have been stuck in there since the beginning of the game come out and you win the province the other thing that's neat is whenever you tax your people they're green cubes which represent the farmers well they get added in and well if you're defending a province and the farmers aren't revolting yet they help defend the province so it's like ooh, extra green cubes came out and i won like it's so neat compared to uh, roll a die or count how many chits are in this pile versus this pile and look it up on a chart like for a a war game folk on a map i love it so the other game i'm going to mention is called shogun so when wallenstein came out i played it at a friend neil's house he had the german version of the game he had gone probably on board game geek uh, he was more into game euro games than i was then i don't even think i was on board game geek at the time but he went somewhere and he found english versions of all the cards and he sleeved all the cards and he had the english slid in with the german cards and we literally played like a a hacked version of the game like it reminded me when we used to you know bootleg anime and it would have bad subtitles on it right so he had this like subtitled version of wallenstein i loved it like one of the best games I ever played well when it came out in north america queen games put it out and for some reason they totally rethemed the entire thing to japanese samurai and they called the game shogun despite the fact there was already a really popular game from avalon hill called shogun and there's still confusion to this day between the two versions but this is a big orange box with uh tino is uh one of the shoguns of history on the cover shogun is to me a better version of wallenstein for new players but the rules are identical the only thing that's different is the names of things so in that you have temples palaces and theaters and in wallenstein it's like temples there's no theaters there's something else i forget the themes change instead of german medieval troops you're you're a shogun with all your samurai and your ronin and you're taxing the farmers and the maps Japan instead of Germany. But that map doesn't have as much interaction as the Wallenstein map. So it's a lot easier to turtle. It's a lot, you have less borders to defend. So it's a better map for new players. Once you play with people who know the game, I prefer Wallenstein because that map is dense. You've got people on all sides trying to defend a province in the middle on that board is tough. You're going to have people coming in from all sides. Wallenstein Shogun, the cube tower is amazing. Everything about the game. It, you look at our mechanics list of 50 mechanics, it probably uses 20 of them and it uses them well. And, you know, when, when you've got to look on Board Game Geek and you see something that's been around that long with a 7 point uh, or 7 plus rating on it, it, it's got some staying power. Yes, it does. All right, up next, Keyflower. I probably shouldn't talk as much as I did about Wallenstein and Shogun on the rest of these. So I may cut some of these a little shorter. So Keyflower is, oh, I feel bad. I don't remember the designer's name, but every game he releases. Sebastian Bleasdale, Bleasdale? and Richard Breeze. Richard Breeze. It's Richard Breeze is the main one. So every game Richard Breeze puts out has key in the name. He has key to the city London. He has key Cathedral. He has Keeper. And so on. They're called the Key Series games. They're all, some of them have similar mechanics. Of those, my favorite is a game called Keyflower. Now, Keyflower is a, I want to say empire building, but your empire is just like you're expanding your farm. So it's a very small empire. Just the term I would use for that is empire building. You're starting off small building out. The way you do it 
ha- is through one of the most unique auction systems I've seen. So you put these hex tiles on the board and you have meeple. And your meeple are three different colors, red, blue, or yellow. And you got them randomly at the beginning of the game. So you don't know what color anyone else has. And you put a meeple next to a tile saying, I want to own that tile. And at the end of the round, I want to take this and add it to my empire. Well, someone else can outbid you by playing on their side of the tile. The way they do that is they have to play a meeple of the same color and they have to play more of them. So if I play one red meeple, Angie Games could outvote me by putting two red meeple. And then Sean could outvote all of us by putting three red meeple. But if all Sean has is blue meeple, he can't bid on that tile. It's very neat. Now, activating tiles uses a very similar system where you put one meeple on a tile, you do whatever the tile allows you to do. The next person can put two and the next person can put three, but then it maxes out at six meeple on a tile. So not only are you auctioning these tiles to add to your province, you're also using the tiles to do stuff. So the things you do are you collect resources, you deliver resources, and then you use the resources to upgrade the tiles you own. What's neat is you can play on other people's provinces. You don't have to stick with only what you built. With that, there's a disadvantage to this because any meeple you use to activate an opponent's tile... At the end of the round, they get to keep those meeple for the next round. Now, there is way more to this game. It is fantastic, but it is not easy to teach. It's some unique mechanics, and it's really opaque as to what you're going to score points for and what you're going to want to do. So one of the things when you activate a tile, it lets you move stuff. Well, if you don't have somewhere to deliver the goods you're producing, there's no reason to move this stuff. And if you don't haven't played before, you don't necessarily realize that you not only want to get a forest to create wood, you also want to get a warehouse to store it so it's worth points. So it's rather interesting. Keyflower is fantastic. There are two expansions. I'm going to forget which does which, but one adds breadth, the other adds width. Uh, so by breadth, what I mean is it gives you more of the same. There's more options. The other one gives you more depth to the game so there are more ways to score points and more interactions so more of the same stuff to make it more interesting and then new stuff that adds depth one of the expansions that one's the merchants i think that's the one that gives you more things to do and the other is the farmers which i think yeah that adds a whole area control thing where you start putting uh, animals between your cities and you know when you're talking about one of the top 50 uh, games on board game geek it's hard to go wrong. The top 50 out of however many thousand of ga- thousands of games are on BGG. Up next, this should be, again, be no secret to anyone. I talk about it a lot on the show. Race for the Galaxy. Still, to me, the best implementation of hidden action selection, where a big part of the game is trying to pick which action to do, and even more so, trying to figure out what your opponent's going to do so they can do the work for you. This is one of those games where if you take an action, everyone at the table gets to do it, but the person who picked that action gets a bonus. So you want to sit there and settle hoping that Sean explores to get you that extra card, and you want to settle because you're pretty sure Anshi Games is going to produce, so you're going to make sure when you settle, you put down a non-windfall world so you get a good on it that turn. It's that kind of thinking that makes Race for the Galaxy brilliant to me. There is one really huge problem with Race for the Galaxy is it probably has one of the highest learning curves of any game I own because of the iconography. 
There are so many icons in this game. And not only that, it's almost confusing for no reason. A great example of this is the consume action. Every player has two cards for the consume action. One is consume trade and the other is consume times two. Why call them both consume? Why not just call one card trade and the other one consume? And then when I'm teaching the game, it's not as confusing. Or explore. I have to always explain the difference between explore plus one plus one and explore plus five plus zero. If you don't get the game, along with all the other icons hearing that, you're just like, what? What's this do? I just play this card. I've done the, I just play this card. To me, and I, and I don't honestly understand why I don't understand it. I'm not sure what it is I'm not getting. To me, I think I actually really need to sit down at, at Board Game Geek and read the actual rule book and just sort of try and figure it out because there's something I'm missing and I don't know what it is that I'm not missing. That's, I, I don't know what it is that hasn't connected with me yet. There's no reason that I shouldn't like this game. I Everything about it says this looks like a really good game, uh, but for some reason it just hasn't. Yeah, I don't know. Sometime maybe you'll pick it up. It is fantastic on Board Game Arena. Like, it is really well done on Board Game Arena. I've been playing a lot with Eric and his wife and one of his friends, Jason, I think his name is. But anyway, really good. Uh, Another note with Race for the Galaxy. The base game is good. It is even better with the first expansion. It is possibly better with the second expansion. The third expansion really changes the game. Thankfully, the rules in the third expansion are optional. You can choose to use them or not. What all of the later expansions do, for one, is increase the player count. So you can actually play six players, which is really cool. The other thing it does is it increases the player versus player interaction. So the other complaint you'll hear from a lot of people on Race for the Galaxy is that it's multiplayer solitaire. And I will admit, with the core base game... Once you get Race for the Galaxy, the best way to play is to do, as I mentioned before, is watch what your opponents are doing and use what they're doing to your advantage. So to me, that's very far away from Solitaire. But as far as the actual card play and interactions go, yes, what they play is not going to affect your tableau and your tableau is not going to affect the third player's tableau. Whereas with the expansions, you actually do have cards where you can take over other people's worlds and you can steal cards and stuff like that. I'm on the fence about how good those are to... To me, you have to have players that already know the game, and they're well. There's enough race for the galaxy fans out there. They're not all in here in Windsor for me to play with all the time. Next, I have Clank, a deck building adventure. That is the official full name of Clank. There are probably lots of people out there that are going to listen to this, have read it on the blog, whatever, who are going to say, "What about Clank in space?" I will admit, so far I've only played Clank in space once. That one time I played it, I did not enjoy it. I didn't have as much fun as Clank. The normal version. Clank in Space added more to the game, and I don't know if it made it more fun. Maybe I just need to learn the cards and learn the game better, and maybe this will change, but as I said, this is the hot list of right now. Right now, Clank is my favorite deck-building game. There is a game called Dungeon Quest. Now, in Dungeon Quest, you pick a fantasy hero, and you have a big grid, and then a bunch of random tiles that generate a dungeon, and in the middle is the Dragon's Lair. And the goal of that game is to sneak in Grab as much treasure as you can and get out before you die. The best way to get treasure was to get right to the dragon's lair. But when you did that, there were these random tiles. And every time someone looted the dragon's lair, there was a chance the dragon would wake up and kill you instantly. And you were out of the game because this is an old school 90s game. And player elimination was one of the things that happened back then. I really liked that game. It was a lot of fun. What I have not heard any other reviewer say is that Clank is a modern version of that, because to me, it's the same game. 
you are exploring a dungeon, you're playing a fantasy character, you have your deck that represents your abilities, you're sneaking in, you're grabbing treasure, and trying to get out before the dragon kills you. It's a modern version. There's somewhat player elimination because you can get knocked out, but even when you're knocked out every time your turn comes along, you get to draw cubes from the bag. No, actually, if you die in the dungeon before that, you may have to wait two or three turns for the other players to get there, but I find in that game you're invested enough, you want to know what's happening. So you're still at the table, and then when someone escapes, even if you're dead, you have something to do on your turn. So it's not as bad as Dungeon Quest that way, but the feeling is the same. I I think that's what I'm reaching for here, is that feeling of push your luck, can I go one more room, am I going to make it, do I grab that one extra thing, or am I going to get stuck and not make it out in time, is the same in both games. But Clank's a modern deck builder and a really good one. So the reason it's called Clank is some of your cards in your hands are you make noise. And the more noise you make, cubes of your color go in a bag. Every round, when new cards go into the market, like any other deck building game, if it has a dragon icon on it, the dragon wakes up. And then you draw so many cubes out of the bag. And of course, they're going to be all the different player colors. And then there's black ones, which means the dragon didn't hear you. So you draw cubes out. So the more Clank you make, the more chance the dragon's going to spot you and you're going to take damage. What else I really like about this is I play games where someone has run in, gone to two rooms, and decided to leave. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh my god, the game's going to end. Like, the dragon's coming. We only have a few rounds to get stuff. Then I've had other games where players have played for an hour, and we all have these massive decks, and everyone's carrying two artifacts before anyone tries to leave. And both work. They're both fun. I like Clank. I should try Clank in space again. Clank is one of those games that... Uh, has gotten a lot of recognition, or the, the list of competitions it's been nominated for is staggering. Like, it's really achieved a lot of recognition, but it, it's, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Uh, moving on, Robo Rally. Uh, I love Robo Rally. This is the program movement game. So much a program movement game that the entire point of the game is you are programming a robot. Uh, it does have a really amusing theme. You There's a giant factory in the future that makes... I've. They even had a name for it, but what with thingamajigs. And the robots get really bored, so they decide to have a race. And this is the most deadly factory ever. There's conveyor belts, and there's flamethrowers, and there's lasers, and there's pits, and there's gears that turn, and there's crushers. And the whole thing is you take map tiles that represent these crazy things, you put them out on the board, you put out flags, and say you go, eh, we're going to have three flags this game. The first robot to hit all three flags wins. You're going to program your robot like Logo. Turtle graphics? Logo is a programming language in which you move a little turtle by using commands like forward three, turn left, forward two. So Robo Rally, you're, you're programming. You know, forward so many, turn left, turn right. Now, this game has had a bunch of editions. I personally love the original edition from Richard Garfield. Yes, the guy that made Magic. He made this before Magic. He was famous for this game before he. no one cares that he made this anymore because he made a card game. Um, metal miniatures, uh, little tiny chits, way too many boards to pick from, decks of upgrades, way too long a gameplay time, to be honest, if you use more than like two boards and this is the pitfall of roborelli not the ones on the map but of the game if you put out like you you get all these maps you're like we're gonna make a huge warehouse and we're gonna put 20 checkpoints it'll be awesome trust me four boards with four checkpoints is probably eight hours of gameplay seems like a great idea it's not it's like let's play battle tech with four point lances with seven players you just don't do it it's bad trust me i tried that one too 
Keeping it down and simple is great. I like that addition. There's some fiddly rules. There are actual rules for virtual robots. And it has to do with when robots respawn on top of each other. At the start of a round, they're virtual for one round. Like, I get the rules, but, like, they're the Race for the Galaxy rules of Robo Rally, where there's a lot of people who just don't get those rules. So they put out a new addition. Avalon Hill put this one out in Star Wars of the Coast. And it has a new starting board. So every time your robot respawns, it shows up on the starting board. And it removes the whole virtual robot thing. They also change the components to some plastic uh they changed the way upgrades work they they changed a few things now recently i think it's either hasbro or mattel put out a version and man like they they turned it almost into a kid's game like it it's cheap plastic pieces the player boards are literally like thick paper it's really badly produced but they changed the game in a way that I almost like. So in the old rules, all your cards had numbers on them. So you would have move forward 300. And then Sean would have move forward 200. And that was your initiative, which really mattered. Because if Sean was in front of me and I moved before him, I'd push him before he moved. Well, what they did with this is instead they put this little beacon point piece out and whatever robot's closest to it acts first. And supposedly that's like the thing that's sending out your program to all the robots. I'm like, that was actually kind of cool. The other thing they did is all the old versions of the game used one deck and everyone drew from the same deck. Sometimes you get a hand and it's all turns and someone else would get all the forwards and it kind of sucked, but to me that was always part of the game. Well, now it's they turned it into a deck building game. So everyone has their own deck for their robot. Now they're all the same decks. They didn't make it asymmetric. Again, listen to our last episode if you want to know what that means. But then they made the damage part of the deck building. So now, instead of taking damage counters, and once you take 10 counters, you blow up. Instead, you put bad cards into your deck. So when you shuffle at the start of the turn, there's a chance you'll draw bad stuff. I really don't recommend this version of Robo Rally. Like, it's neat. It's, it's kind of cool. But I like the old one better. What I do recommend, though, is the new one... Like you can pick it up for like less than 20 bucks. Pick that up and then go Google the original rules from Richard Garfield and play with the old rules. The only problem is you're stuck without the decks. I don't know. I've played the new version. Uh, one thing I have to say is it's quick. Yeah, comparatively. I th- I think the last New Year's I was, I was down for. Okay. We played that upstairs. And we played four board. And, uh, you know, we made it through in a reasonable period of time. So... Uh, it's got that going forward, at least in the uh, the new version. Next, The Duke. I've talked about this game quite a bit. Probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, two-player games. Uh, at one point, we kept this in the car. This is a very, I hate saying it, simple to learn, hard to master. Everyone says this, but this is like that. It is a six-by-six six grid. You each start with a Duke on the board and two other pieces. Capture the opponent's Duke to win. Chess-like. The brilliant part is the pieces have how they move right on the pieces so you don't have to memorize anything. Even cooler, when you move a piece, you flip it over and those moves change. Very neat. Add to that bag building and the fact that when you put a new unit on the board, you draw from a bag and you don't know what you're going to get. Fantastic chess-like game. I recommend this to almost everyone. Even if you don't like chess, give this a try. Like It is a solid two-player strategy game. Honestly, if you don't like chess definitely give this a try. I would take this over chess any day. I don't have anything against chess, but I find chess just tedious. And I, I understand that, that what I find tedious is actually what draws a lot of people to chess. Uh, but for me, and especially for younger people who may not have the, the, the patience at this point to, to deal with the, the monotony of chess, the Duke is a really great alternative. I really recommend it. 
Also, it's simple enough. You can play while having a few adult beverages. Up next, Alien Frontiers. This game is by Minion Games, who do not have a very good reputation in the industry, but man, by Alien Frontiers. It is a dice placement game. So it's a worker placement game that uses dice. The start of your turn, you have so many spaceships and you're going to use those spaceships to do things. And what you're trying to do is colonize a planet. And I think the planet's like called Heinlein. The different zones on it are all different sci-fi things. It actually uses a lot of sci-fi literature themes very well, actually. You roll those three ships and you look at the numbers and based on what numbers you have, you can put them on different spots. Say the shipyard is you need a straight, and the get or is you need numbers the same, and the pirates are you need something else. And you're going to put your guys on the board, and you're going to do that to do stuff like get new ships, to get re- resources. You can use the resources to buy technology cards. Technology cards are going to let you mitigate the dice rolls. Almost all the technology cards let you swap a die or turn a die side or re-roll a die. Or steal stuff from the other players because it's a very cutthroat game. You're doing all this to make little colonies on the planet. You do that and it takes rounds to build your little colonies. Like they just slowly build up and once they hit the last spot, they go on the planet. Once you're actually colonizing the planet, it's all about area majority. Again, last episode, if you want to know what that means. So you're fighting for different controls of different majorities on the planet. And for every area you control, you get a special ability. These special abilities are really powerful, but you don't have enough units that you can grab a lot of them. If you're lucky, you might have two or three. And if you have three, one of the other players is totally going to steal that from you and make sure you don't have three next turn. This game is tight. What I mean by tight is that every mechanic in the game works perfectly with every other mechanic in the game and nothing seems wasted. You never have a term where there's nothing to do and you're always progressing towards something. And if you're not, it's because another player is blocking you. And that's a big part of the strategy. You can have strategy because of the dice rolls. There's also a high level of tactics where you have to adapt with what you have to use every turn. To use Jeff Engelstein's turn... It's a ton of output randomness, which is really cool. I really dig this game. Now, I don't say this often, but in my opinion, avoid every expansion that's ever been made, and there are a ton of them. I was about to say, I pulled it up on Board Game Geek, and there, I mean, there's like 20 different yes. expansions for this game. You, know, you never guess where this game was uh, first funded. Hmm. <laughs> Kickstarter? Tons of expansions. Yes. I was a Kickstarter. No, I'm serious. There is an expansion called Factions. That adds new worker placement spots. The problem is when you do this, I said it's a very tight game. Once you throw the expansions, it becomes a loose game. You now have the one faction that's more powerful than anything else on the board, so every round's just a competition to get that one spot. That's just not cool. Or now there's so many spots to take, and it's a worker placement game. It doesn't matter because the spot you want, so what it's taken, I can go over here. It just, it feels loose. It's just not as tight a game. I don't don't know a better way to describe that feeling. Uh, The Outer Belt expansion in Alien Frontiers was created by someone who felt the resource management was too tight. So we had to make it so everyone can get all the resources they need. I don't know. Like, I I don't get it. Uh, And you've got expansions like the Mind Control Helmet and the Space Crane. Yes. So Even your naming conventions are are putting me off your, your expansions. Maybe you want to rethink A lot of those little expansions just add new tech cards. And again, I found the original tech deck really tight. And it's another game that rewards 
play multiple times so you eventually learn that deck so when the deck's small and tight you can be like i'm going fishing for this because i know there's three copies in the deck and no one has it yet so my odds are good you throw in all those expansions i'm like oh yeah i'm sure that card's in there somewhere it's a very different feel uh alien frontiers stick to the original game i know there's fans out there the expansions not for me i will always play that game with just the core rules up next orleon this is a bag builder Think deck builder where you have a set of cards and you get new cards, you put them in the deck, you shuffle your deck rows. Same deal, but instead you have little pogs, basically round chits. Those are your workers, they go in a bag and every round you're going to draw from the bag and then it becomes a worker placement game. But it's a very unique worker placement game because in general, everyone has their own board. The only thing you're interacting with is your own planning and your own board. There is one central board where you can upgrade some of your guys into the um, the leadership of the city. That is a special board that you can move guys into. But other than that, you're stuck with your own board. This is another game, I, I got to use that term tight again. It's one of those games where you never have everything to do everything you want to do. You can't do everything you want to do. You have to pick and choose. And with the randomness of what you draw from the bag is going to determine what you can do each turn. And whenever you obviously you need that knight, you're not going to draw it. And that is a big part of the game. There is player interaction, even though you're building on your own boards. It's solid. Uh, it's, it's a really good, probably the best bag builder I own. It's a point salad. You have lots of different things. There's pick up and deliver at the top of the map. There's route movement. There's drafting, like you can build new buildings, which give you more worker placement spots. That's one of the things that's player versus player in a way that there's interaction is only one person can build a building. So there's a race to build certain ones. Area control in that, because as you buy certain types of builders, you move up on technology tracks and whoever is the highest on tracks gets bonuses. Way too big a game for me to cover here well. Fantastic game that is one of the best on that medium to heavy weight. Though easier to teach than Race for the Galaxy. Yeah, you were, you were talking about weight. This, this won the 2017 Best Expert Game. Yeah, it's it's not a light game. Definitely not. Not for your family who likes playing Catan and Carcassonne. Don't bring out or Orléans. Or the next one. Don't bring out Anachrony. Anachrony is one of the coolest themes I have ever seen in a board game. It is a post-apocalyptic world. The world is destroyed humans are barely hanging on they have broken off into four factions these four factions they call themselves the paths these four paths all have a different idea on how the world should run now that humans are near extinct each player plays one of these paths asymmetric powers everyone's got a different thing they can do even cooler you randomize them so you have two powers to pick for each faction you pick which one to use then you also have your player board that's also asymmetric. You can play on the A or B side. So lots of ways to mix up starting powers and starting abilities. Now, what happens in this game is it's already post-apocalyptic. They built this capital, this really cool, tall-looking building with lots of four different heads on the top of it. Well, a meteor comes and smashes into this world. And this meteor is filled with this material that allows your factions to discover time travel by using this material. So then what happens is because you have discovered time travel in the future, you've obviously developed it. So what you start playing is a worker placement game where you can send yourself resources from the future. But if you do so, you have to make sure on a later turn, you actually send those resources back or you have to suffer paradox. Like how brilliant is that? Like, is that not one of the coolest concepts for a board game? 
So they're basically board gameizing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they have to remember to put the key behind yes. the bushes outside the police station. That is exactly what they're doing. Exactly. Now, added to that, they use what they call a nested worker placement system, which I don't know, that's a funky term they use. That one wasn't on our list or the Board Game Geek list. But you have workers, and there's different types, which is cool. So you have like scientists, and you have mechanics, and you have bureaucrats, and brilliant people they can act as any of the other three and they can do actions on your board because it's safe on your board because that's considered your faction's haven but the world has gone to crap right post-apocalyptic you can't go outside so you have mechs and if you own the expansion for this game so this is a game where i do say buy the expansion the mechs are plastic mechs and you actually slot the little cardboard workers into the top of them which is so cool and then once you slot a worker into a mech you can then send the mech out to a worker placement spot on the board and it's neat. Like, I've never seen another game do this. It's not as cool as sending yourself resources from the future, but it, it's pretty neat. So just just a technical note, they actually call them exosuits, not yeah, mechs. Sorry, yes, sorry, exosuits. Neutronium. Neutronium, there you go. So what's really cool in this game is that it sounds complicated, it looks complicated, and it's a table hog. When I set this up, it scares people. Like, they don't want to play. But then you start playing, and it's really simple. Because on your main board at the start of the game, there is literally two actions, and they're both how to get your workers back, which you don't need to do at the beginning because all your workers are available. All that's left is the spots on the board, and there are only six actions on the main board. And they are really simple. It's build a building. It's learn a technology. It's mine for resources. I'm going to forget a couple of them, of course. It's get water because water is really important in this game. Or it's do an action someone else has taken and steal first player. Or do an action someone else has taken and not steal first player. And that's it. That's all your choices. So when you start the game, it's really simple. You're like, well, I want to build a building. To build a building, I need resources. So obviously, I'm going to go mining. Or it's, wow, I need water to wake my people up to get my workers back. So I'm going to go get some water. There's really not a lot of choice at the beginning. But one of those actions is build buildings. And every time you build a building, you put a new spot on your personal board. So in that way, the decision tree grows by putting that spot on. Now, next turn, I have a new place to go. Actually, not even the next turn. You can use buildings that build, turn you build them. And at the beginning of the game, you haven't built a time machine, so you don't have to worry about that. But if you're sort on resources, you can take stuff from the future. What you have to do then later is build yellow buildings. And then literally you have to spend those resources again, spend the resources you didn't have before, hopefully you've now made them and can send them back. And if you don't, there's a chance you get paradox, and paradoxes in that game are pretty bad. They're minus points. The only way to stop a paradox is to sacrifice one of your workers by throwing him into the time portal. There's some amusing kind of dark themes to the game that you don't necessarily see until you're playing. You're like, wait a minute. Now, added to that, there's all kinds of cool technologies, there's stuff you can develop, and then the game has, I think, the most optional rules I've ever seen in a board game. So in the core game, you can change the time track so that when you're sending stuff back and forth through time, random events can happen. You can change the amount of events you have. There's the different sides of the player boards. Then there's a whole way that if you don't like, there's an abstract tech system where you just grab triangle circles and squares. And if you have the right ones, it's assumed you have the right tech. Well, you can throw all that out and put a whole technology board out with a whole new deck of cards where you can learn it. 
there's a way you can change so the meteor doesn't always hit at the same time. You can randomize that. Like, there's just a ridiculous amount. And then they have an expansion that has the plastic exosuits in it, which I'd strongly recommend just because they're so cool. That adds, like, six more variants to the game. I will admit, this is on my top 20 list. I haven't tried any of those. I just like the base game. And now this isn't Alien Frontiers where I think the base game's better. It's just I've had enough fun with the base game. I haven't felt the need to mess with it yet. But if I ever do get bored, I've got lots of options to try. Moving on. Bruges. You've heard me talk about this in the game because this game blows my mind because it is a Stefan Feld point salad I can play in under an hour. That is something that shouldn't happen. You're building the city of Bruges. To do it, you are drafting workers. Really neat system where you have to put the cards in two different trays and you can only see the back of the cards and the cards tell you what color they are. Like, sorry, the backs tell you what color they are. That's all you know is what color card you're getting, not what actual card. That's neat. When you get the cards, every card can be used for six, I'm going to guess here, six different things. You have to decide, how do I use this card? Do I use it to draft more workers or do I use it to build canals or do I use it to move my influence up? Or do I use it to build a house? Or do I use it to put that card as a person in that house? And there's all these options, all of which give you points. End of the game, you're adding all this stuff up to figure out who won. And like I said, it played in under an hour. Stefan Feld is probably my favorite designer. And surprisingly, this is the only game of his that hit my top 20 list right now. I am really digging Bruges. I only got into it this year. Uh, There's an expansion out there, but it's out of print and goes for like $200. I would love to try it. Right now, I am a huge fan of Bruges. I can't recommend it enough. Onitama. If you like the Duke, you'll probably like Onitama. Onitama is a simple version of the Duke. So instead of the actual pieces telling you how they move, your pieces are generic and you have cards that are movements for any of your pieces. This one's a slightly smaller grid. It's 5x5 five five instead of 6x6, six six, but it still has that chess-like feel. You have two ways to win. I put it up on the blog. I think one's way of the swan and the other's way of the lake or way of the rock and way of the lake. But anyway, it's supposed to represent a martial arts duel between two rival factions. It's an abstract strategy game. You're moving pieces on a grid. You want to get your sensei into the opponent's temple, or you want to capture the opponent's sensei. One of the two, and those are the two ways to win. What is brilliant in this game is that every game you're going to take five cards out of the 32 or so that come in the starter set. I don't remember how many. Something that there's 500 and some possible combinations of. You're going to take five of those cards. You're going to give two to your opponent. You're going to keep two to yourself. You're going to put one in the middle. The one in the middle is going to tell you who starts. It's either red or blue. Then you're going to look at your moves. You're going to flip it up so you can see every move all the time. Perfect information the entire game. Once those cards are out, they never change. Then you're going to pick a move. Then when you do the move, it goes to the middle. You take the move from the middle. Then your opponent is going to do a move, and they're going to take the move, and you're going to put a new one in the middle. So what this means is when you use a move, you basically give it to your opponent, and you just use those five moves for the entire game, and it's all out on the table. It is a pure battle of tactics and strategy between two players. In that way, it is much more chess-like than the Duke. It, though, is much quicker than any game of chess. You can finish a game at Onitama in five minutes. I think my longest game was maybe 20. I love this game. It is even more portable than the Duke. It comes with a neoprene mat. The pieces are nice thick cardboard. The cards are tarot-sized, and if I just laminated them, I would play this on a beach. Like, we have brought it to a picnic. We have played on picnic tables. We have played sitting in the grass at a splash pad. Of course, we had to be far away from the splash pad because I haven't added that plastic. But if I laminated these cards, like... We could play in the rain. It's a game you can play anywhere because the components are durable and simple. Heck, you could probably recreate the entire game 
using rocks and draw a grid on the sand. You just need some way to use the cards. Very cool game. If you like the Duke, check it out. If you like chess, check it out. If you want a quick filler, 5-10 minute, get that chess feel in. Check out Onitama. Uh, I see four expansions for it. Are they uh, recommended? So the first expansion definitely... Sensei's Path is one of them. There's a few. That's it. Sensei's Path. All it does is give you new cards. But then if you think about it, that you're always using a subset of all your cards of five. By adding one new card, you're adding a ridiculous number of permutations and possibilities. By adding 24 new cards, like you're up into thousands of possible combinations. The newest one that's coming out isn't out yet, but I got to see it at Origins. And it adds this little ferret piece that's a wind spirit. And what it does is it goes on the board too. And if it moves on to a spot with another piece that swaps them... To me, it sounds like it's going to add a random element I won't like. I don't know because I haven't tried it. Other than that, all I know of are promos, which I do have both the promos, which are two more move cards. And again, every move card you add adds to the possible combinations of every game. So those are Phoenix and Turtle and Goat and Sheep are the promo cards? Yep, those are those. Those are the promo cards. They are available at the Dice Tower booth anytime you see them at a con. We will next move on to Concordia. Concordia is a fantastic, it is the trading in the Mediterranean game I have on my list. Everyone talks about trading in the Mediterranean being the overused Euro theme. Well, I have one on my list because Concordia, in my opinion, does it better than all other trading in the Mediterranean games. You start from Rome, you expand out from Rome, building trade routes. This is a pure resource management game where you are going to connect new routes to collect more resources, to be able to connect more routes, to be able to collect more resources, to make newer routes. The neat part in this game is it's a deck builder. Not in the way you think of Clank, where you start with like 20 cards and by the end of the game you're going to have a 40 card deck. This is like you start with 8 and at the end of the game you may have 12. It's a very different style of deck builder. What's cool in this one is you never shuffle your deck. Your cards are all available to you all the time, and when you play them, you take the action on that card. You don't necessarily know what someone's going to play until they play it. It's not everyone plays it once. So you play your card, and you do an action. The neat one in this is one of your cards, the action is pick up all your cards. Kind of a when do you use that card? Do you try to use up all your cards by, by the time you have to waste a turn redrawing? Or do you do it nice and early so you can cycle through some of your better actions more often? The cards do stuff like letting you move, letting you establish trade routes... There's a whole currency system where you can trade in goods to get stuff. And then the more people that do that, the more value there is. Then you get to the end of the game. And this I've never seen in any other game. What you score is based on the cards you drafted during the game. I need a chart in front of me to know what these do. But there'll be one that's for collecting resources. There'll be one for building routes. There'll be one for having a trading house in different provinces. And you only score these if you've collected the cards during the game. Now, those eight cards you start with are the eight different ways to score. So everyone is going to score everything once. But if you've collected six cards that are all about owning provinces, well, you're going to add up all your provinces and multiply it by six. The scoring in this game is so pivotal that they tell you the first time you're playing to play through an entire round, then stop and do a scoring round so everyone gets it. Whereas when everyone's played before, you only ever score at the very end of the game. And man, is it hard to know who's winning. It's having to remember that, wait, I think I saw him draw six Aries cards, so therefore he's going for area majority and how do I stop him is so hard to remember. This is a brilliant game. Easier to teach than it sounds me explaining it here, but without having it in front of me, I can't really do it justice. Great use of the deck building mechanic that is not a Star Realms Ascension, that style of game. 
Now, we mentioned this one at the top. This is one of the reasons I went to a top 20 list instead of a top 10, because these games wouldn't have went on there because they were below 15, which is dexterity games. I really dig dexterity games, and one of the best I own is Hamster Roll. It is a silly game. You have a big wooden wheel that has plastic black slats on it that are not regular shaped, and they're kind of bent and skewed. And then everyone has a whole bunch of wooden pieces of different shapes. You got squares and rectangles and longer squares and flat pieces and a tube. And then the start player actually has a giant black cone. And you are going to sit there and put these pieces on the wheel. And it's going to roll when you do this. And if any pieces fall off, you have to collect them. And the goal is to play all your pieces. Person who plays all of their pieces wins. And basically, it's a race to play your pieces. What is brilliant about this game is how tactical it is. Because there's a rule about the piece you place has to go further up the wheel than the previous player. So it's all about not just trying to balance the piece on like any dexterity game, but going, wait, if I put this here, he's got to put a square next. And if I put it, the square's not going to fit here. He's going to be stuck and have to play it almost impossibly up here. Like, it's I've never seen so much strategy in it, just a stacking game otherwise. Plus, there's some really kind of neat stuff where Zoc Verleg is who puts out this game. And in a way, I think it's an excuse for them. But the wheel is not perfectly round. And sometimes it sticks. And that's all part of the game. So you can eventually get to know your wheel that, oh, it's on the stuck spot. Which means we're going to be able to pile up a bunch of stuff. But at some point, it's going to go and roll good. And that's part of the charm of this game. My only complaint about Hamster Roll is how much it costs. It's made of wood, it's handmade, and because of that, you're paying for a handmade item. But it wouldn't be the same if it was, uh, you know, plastic, pressed, everything the same. The personality exactly. of it is in that handmade woodenness. Up next is another dexterity game. The one that really I might have rated, if I had to think about it, I probably would have put higher than Hamster Roll. This is Pitch Car. So this is wooden track with plastic rails, flicking crokinole-style discs that represent race cars. Go around the, the track three times first person to get around three times wins this game is fantastic like if you want a pure dexterity flicking game uh any strategy that exists in this game is uh you trying to cut someone off maybe no this this is no hamster roll this this is just you're flicking cars along a wooden track trying to win this is one where if you get the expansions you start getting ramps you start getting potholes uh i have one that's like a six foot long straight track and what that's perfect for is to make the game go over two tables uh there's risers to make the game 3d just the base game though gives you enough to have a lot of fun i don't think there is a better game to play at a pub when people have had a few drinks where was one night at villains bistro we must have played 15 or so games in a row had a great time I really dig Pitch Car. Now, when I mentioned Hamster Roll was expensive, it's got nothing on Pitch Car. This is not a cheap game, but it's all wooden pieces, and I think it's worth the money for the amount of enjoyment you're going to get out of it. There's something to be said about those games that you can just sort of play anywhere, and and you don't have to deal cards and dice. Though I got to admit, setting up Pitch Car can be a bit of a pain, especially with all the expansion. But it's something I usually grab a group of people, and I'm like, hey, grab a piece, put it on, and everyone just kind of throws stuff down. Uh, up next is the only party game on my list. I am not a party game fan, but I do really like a game called Concept. In Concept, you put out a board that has a ton of icons on it. It's the Race for the Galaxy, the board, because there's just so many weird icons on this thing. And they're in columns that kind of represent things. 
And then you draw a card, and it gives you something. A person, place, thing, right? You're, you're thinking trivia game kind of here. The brilliance of this game is then what you have to do is you have to get that concept across to the other players. And you do that by playing pieces on this board of icons. It's really hard to describe without showing someone, but I could teach it to you in five minutes if you were here with me. You're going to put a piece out saying the main concept. You're going to put other cubes out to show stuff. So say my clue was Spider-Man. I may put main concept on man-woman. And where I place it, I'm going to put it on the man side. And then I'm going to sit there and I'm going to pick a thing that shows movies as it's a related concept. Now there's no spiders on there, so I might try to find something like climbing and put a token on that. I may find there's, there's actually a picture of a dude with a cape, so you're like, oh, that's a superhero. And I'm going to keep putting these out here, and I'm not allowed to say anything. And then all the other players are supposed to guess. Actually, that's not right, according to the rules. According to the rules, you're supposed to form teams, and there's all these rules for points. And they're No, throw all that out. Seriously, toss it out. This is an experience more than a game. One person's going to sit there and try to make the concept. Everyone else is going to try to guess. Whoever guesses then draws the next concept. Throw out the scoring. Who cares? It's all about the fun. We once played this game 72 times in a row on New Year's Eve. And we were still having fun. The only reason we stopped playing is we used up every card in the deck. I don't know what it is about this game. I love it. I usually hate party games. I love this game. Moving on to Power Grid. Power Grid is probably the oldest game on my list. This is a true classic. This game is the heaviest hero on my list, probably. A lot of people like to call this math the game or spreadsheet the game. Yes, there's math, but it's all basic addition. I really don't think that's the focus of the game. This is a route building game where you are trying to build the power stations, generators, in as many cities as you can. Sort of. Because the end game scoring, it's whoever can power the most generators, not who's built the most. There is a lot going on in this game. One of the things is you are going to have an auction for your power plants. That auction system nowadays in gaming could have went in our games mechanics page as the power grid auction because it is that well known. Other games come out. Like when Fleet comes out, I met the designer and he's like, it's the power grid auction. We're all like, yep, power grid auction because everyone knows what that means. It is the most fundamental board game auction mechanic and it just works. All it is, is you have to outbid the last guy, and if you pass, you're out, you can't get back in. But it works so well in that game. And it's who gets to pick. Whoever's in first place, whoever's built the most places, has to start the first auction. And if they pass, it goes to the next one. It's a fantastic auction mechanic, one of the best in board gaming. Then you're going to use that. Then you're going to have so much money to build routes. Then you're going to see how many cities you can power, and based on how many cities you can power with that new power plant, you're going to get money. And then rinse, repeat. It goes to the next turn, and people then build new, we're going to auction another power station, people are going to expand their routes, and we're going to do it again. There are some really brilliant mechanics in this game with player order. So the player who has the most buildings out plays first. Playing first is terrible in this game. So there is a lot of this game that the first time you play, you're not going to get, and probably the first three times. Eventually, you're going to learn you don't want to be first. So you're going to try to get that second, third place so that you have a better chance to win in the auction. And then you're going to get to the end of the game. You're going to try to jump ahead to first because it's not going to matter anymore because the game's going to end because someone's built their 17th generator. But if you do that wrong and someone only built 14 generators, but they can power all of them and you can only power 13, they win. It is a brilliant game. 
it's not that bad to teach. It's not as hard as it looks. And yes, there is a lot of math, but it's two-digit addition to three-digit addition. It's really not that bad. The other thing is make sure you play with hidden money. That is how the game is meant to be played as per the designer. Because if you know what everyone's money is, you are going to spend way too much time doing math in your head, trying to figure out if Sean has just enough to build three routes or four. If you have hidden money, yeah, you may know that in the back of your head. But trust me, by the end of the game, you're not going to know how much money Sean has. And you're not going to have to worry about that. And the game will now be three hours long instead of six. Actually, a good game of Power Grid, you can probably get done in an hour and a half to two hours. People know who they're playing. But if you play with open money, those last few rounds are literally going to drag out an extra hour or two. Do not play with open money. Play with closed money. Power Grid has been, I used to call it my number one game. When I first got into these games, I started playing Catan and Carcassonne. Throw those games out. Give me Power Grid. I like this. It's, I would only say it's medium weight possibly a little bit towards heavy but man back then when i had only played Catan, power grid was a heavy game and i loved it i felt like i was in my niche these are the kind of games i i rock this i like this game and i still love power grid next up hansa teutonica yes the last game on my list like bruise this one's new this year so i think this goes for the whole games i like right now maybe this wouldn't be on here next year this is another one where this game's heavy this is a route building game this is Ticket to Ride for heavy board game players. You are using cubes and putting them out to fulfill routes. And once you fulfill a route, you can build offices. And you're playing through the Hanseatic period, the Hanseatic League in Germany. So you represent a merchant house who is trying to build this Hanseatic League. And you're doing that by sending merchants to different houses and building offices in different cities. And there's only five different actions in the game. And they're all really simple, but... Man, where to do them and when and when to bump another player and when you complete routes at certain cities, you can upgrade your abilities so you can do them better and what to upgrade, what not to upgrade, what's important and what to ignore is all these decisions you have to make. And the fantastic part is like Bruges, it's short. It's like an hour and a half or less. To be able to add that much weight and thinking and decision points in a short game is fantastic. Now, Jamie pointed out that the game's even better with the expansion, and I cannot find a copy. I am really looking forward to finding that expansion, because right now, this game is on my top games. You said that was your last game, but we actually skipped Igizia. Oh, we did. Oh, yeah, Igizia. This is the one game right now that disproves Tom Vassell's law. Tom Vassell's law is that any game, if good enough, will be reprinted eventually. Everyone I've taught this game loves it. I, I don't get why this game doesn't exist. Now, I will admit there is a group of people out there that tell me that this has been Jones theoried by um, Francis Drake. To that end, I went and bought a copy of Francis Drake, and I played it three times in a row. And then I played Agizia, and then I sold Francis Drake, because it has nothing on Agizia. What Agizia does, and I think it's one of the first games to do it, is... You have the Nile River, and it's a worker placement game. And when you place your worker on the Nile, you get whatever you put your guy on, whether it's upgrade your dudes or build something or get resources or change the weather, whatever. That part's not as important. But once you place your first guy, your next guy has to go further down the Nile because you're going down the river. You can never go back up. In a way, it's like Takedo. But at the end of every season, you're going to do it again. So it'd be like if you played Takedo three or four times and added everything up. Now, what you're doing when you do this is you are collecting resources, stone, to build monuments for the pharaoh. And there's four different types of monuments you're trying to build. And this is a big area majority system, not area control, because multiple people can build 
multiple things. It's whoever built the most. You are going going to use these bricks to build these things. And you're going to get points for it. So it's a point salad game. One of the other things this game does that I've never seen in any other game is it's got an RPG element in that you upgrade your workers. So you have four different work teams. There's three that have different colors, and then there's a joker that can be teamed with it. And whenever you build something, you can only assign one work team to it. And you can assign your joker with that work team. The thing is, they all start at level one, which means they can only build one thing. So if I go to build the pyramid and I use my yellow work team and they're level one, I can only use one brick to build one part of the pyramid. Well, some of the worker placement spots let you level up these workers and they become a level two work team or a level three work team or a level five work team. Well, when they're a level five work team, they can then put on five bricks when they build the pyramid. So you actually level up your workforce, which I think is really cool. And there's nothing like that in Francis Drake. So yes, Francis Drake, you go down a pattern and you can't go back and you do it multiple times, but that's it. That's all it has in common with Egizia. The other thing in Egizia, your workers are leveling up, right? So like you got a level five work team and a level six work team and you got a level two work team. That's like level 13 total. Well, those teams need 13 food at the end of the year. And if you don't have it, you then have to sell your bricks to pay it off. So you're using your resources. You have to give up your bricks. And if you don't have the bricks, you start giving up victory points. So it's all about balancing how much you level up versus your production versus how much you're making in the farms. Now, here's where the Egyptian theme comes in. There are three different types of farms. There are plentiful farms, bountiful farms, normal farms, and dry farms. And at the end of every round, you determine what the weather is. And if there haven't been enough rains, only the bountiful farms produce. And if there's been tons of rain, then all three produce. And that's something that other players can change during some of those worker placement actions. So a huge part of the game is looking at what other farms the players have and trying to anticipate what the weather is going to be and not upgrading your workers too fast so that there's not a... And all of a sudden there's a drought that year and you can't afford to feed your guys. I really like this game. Everyone I've taught, this game loves it. It is a fantastic game. It's another one I would call tight. Because once you play it a couple times, you get to know, once you know what to expect, the game gets better. So you know eventually that, that yes, there is a field that's going to produce eight in era three. If it didn't come out in era two, it's going to come out in era three and you know you want that. When you first play the game, obviously you won't have that level of mastery. But once you have it, the game gets even better. So yeah, Sagizia, I feel bad for missing it because it's it's one of my favorite games. Wow. This has been a uh, rather exhaustive and perhaps some might, people might think exhausting <laughs> uh, examination of these games. I got to admit, it's not quite what I expected. There are games I love that just didn't show up in the top 20. Like Core Worlds. If you had asked me, what's your favorite deck builder? I probably would have said Core Worlds, not Clank. But then I think about it. Core Worlds takes three to four hours to play. And I bet you when I'm sitting there and ranking, I'm like, man, no, I can fire off a game of Clank. I can play three games of Clank and at the same time I can play one game of Core Worlds. So maybe that's why at the time I put Clank instead. But Core Worlds, fantastic deck builder where you're playing barbarians out on the edge of space who decide, screw it, we're going to go raid the Core Worlds. And you're going through different sectors of space. And as you get closer, you're building up your army to go conquer the capital. Like, what a cool theme. And one of the neatest deck building games, because it has some rules, like it's also a tableau builder. So when you play military units, they stay on the board until you use them to conquer a planet. And they stay out of your deck until you use them. And then when they do, your deck gets big again. You try to play them. Oh, it's so good. Or another one is Food Chain Magnate. I would have never thought a board game about building McDonald's, Taco Bells, and Kentucky Fried Chickens, and managing advertising campaigns, 
and having to manage your workforce would be fun. But oh my God, for that is the heaviest game that should be on this list. The problem is, and it's it's not a problem, it's their solution. The method used by the uh, BJRE is not ideal. But to be more ideal and to be more accurate when you've got a game collection of a thousand games would take exponential amounts of time because the only way to accurately do it is to literally mm-hmm. compare every game against every other game. And and that's just not feasible with any significantly sized board game collection. I think we can probably guarantee listeners this is at the very least going to be an annual event. Yeah, I think so. Because like I said, my tastes change sometimes daily. Like right now, I no, Food Chain Magnet should be up there. I don't know what it should bump though. I'd have to look through the list. Yeah, maybe a year from now, maybe six months. Maybe we'll do it once a quarter. I don't know. We'll see. People seem to love these top 10 lists. If you guys want to know what are my top 10 deck builders, ask that. Go on questions at tabletopbellhop.com or go on the blog and click on Ask the Bellhop and ask what are my top 10 deck building games. If that's what you want to see, we'll do them. I, I have nothing against it. Obviously, I like to talk about the games I'm passionate about and I like. Well, this was a great talk, but if you'd like to read more on this topic, and yes, there is more, be sure to check out the blog at tabletopbellhop.com and click on Gaming Advice, where you'll see this and other questions answered in blog form. We do use show notes, obviously. I did not put anything in the show notes about any of these 20 games. So you could probably go over there and read completely different thoughts about all 20 of these games. So be sure to send your questions over on the website at askthebellhop or email us at questions at tabletopbellhop.com. Bonus for anyone who is a patron of the show at good tip level or better, we'll ask your questions first. Now, speaking of our Patreon, a shout out and a thank you to our backers. Misdirected Mark, the support you have shown for this new effort has just been amazing. Thank you very much. Duran Barnett, thank you. Brian Kurtz, always there to support us. Thank you. Joe Swick, you are awesome. Now, one more shameless plug for the links to the best online deals on Tabletop Games. Check out at Tabletop underscore deals on Twitter. Also, be sure to check out our brother podcast, The Misdirected Mark, where Chris, Phil, and Bob talk gaming and game mastering every week on Tuesday at 845 Eastern. 645 the Queen's time. Well, that was the double bell. That means my shift is coming to an end. Even though we've done some overtime, we're going to have to lock the front doors. Though the doors to the lobby are closed, you can always find us across the web and social media as Tabletop Bellhop, one word. Drop by our website at tabletopbellhop.com for more gaming content. If you like the content we're providing and would like to support our efforts, please consider tipping the bellhop at patreon.com forward slash tabletopbellhop. Remember to join us here on Twitch every Wednesday night, 9.30pm Eastern, and watch for the Tabletop Bellhop Live to hit your podcatchers and YouTube at 2am Eastern every Tuesday. Well, that about wraps up the time we have for the show tonight. For those of you here live, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yes. And hang around in the penthouse suite for a very brief off the books, unless you're a patron after show. For Tabletop Bellhop Live, I'm Sean. And I'm Mo. Thank you. And game on. This has been a Tabletop Bellhop production, copyright 2018.